The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Bettina Elias Siegel. She is a writer and nationally recognized advocate on issues relating to children and food policy. She's been named one of the 20 most influential moms by Family Circle Magazine and one of the top 15 most important moms in the food industry by Elizabeth Street Magazine. What's so interesting about Ms. Siegel is that she is a graduate of Harvard Law School and practiced intellectual property, advertising, and food law in New York City for almost a decade before turning her career towards freelance writing. In early 2010, she became interested in improving the food in her children's school district in Houston, Texas, and then soon afterward launched her widely read blog, The Lunch Tray. Since then, her writing on children and food has since appeared in numerous outlets, including the New York Times, The Guardian, Houston Chronicle, The Huffington Post, and Civil Eats. She's appeared on national television, been featured or quoted in a wide variety of publications, And in her writing, public speaking, and advocacy work, Ms. Siegel has been a vocal supporter of improved federal school nutrition standards, curbing junk food sales on school campuses, and otherwise improving children's school food environments. We have a lot in common. She has also launched three Change.org petition campaigns, which I find to be very interesting because they have been successful, and therefore she has been named one of the most successful petition creators in Change.org's history. Ms. Siegel lives in Houston with her husband and two children, where she serves on the Houston School Health Advisory Council. Welcome, Ms. Siegel. It's a pleasure to have you with me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I find it so interesting that you had a very successful, I'm assuming, career in law. Having a law degree from Harvard pretty much gives you the ticket to write your own job description, and yet you turned your efforts and your good law and advocacy skills towards improving school lunch. How did that happen? <laughs> well, that question sort of makes it sound like it was a very thought out and you know calculated process, and it really wasn't at all. I did practice law for 10 years and then had kids and really had not much enjoyed being a lawyer with the exception of writing, which was the one aspect of the job that I ever really liked. And so for many years, I was home with my kids, a stay-at-home mom. Then I joined a writing workshop when my kids were in preschool directed towards stay-at-home moms. And I found that I very much enjoyed that. I started getting things published in magazines. And I thought that was kind of my new career path was being a freelance writer. And then when my kids entered public school, I was asked if I'd be interested in joining a committee that was being formed of parents to be brought together to advise our nutrition services department about its menus. And I went to that meeting somewhat reluctantly because my kids didn't even eat the school food because it really was pretty bad at that time. And I was so intrigued by, disgusted by, fascinated by so many things that I learned in just that very first meeting that it really sparked something in me, and I started to learn more about the school lunch program, 
And then it all kind of all came together, and I thought, you know, I'm a writer. I'm learning things that I think parents don't know that might be useful to them. I'm going to start a blog just to talk about it, not to be an advocate, but just to kind of share what I'm learning. And then that, over time, over the last six years, has morphed into more on-the-ground advocacy as well as writing and, and written advocacy. How many blogs have you written? The last time I checked my published folder, I swear it was like 1,300 posts, which is sort of embarrassing in a way. Like, I mean, it's kind of crazy that I've had that much to say in six years, but um, yeah, something like 1,300 or 1,400 posts. You know, I totally understand your feelings, and I don't find that to be out of the realm of normal because there are so many issues, and you've attended meetings about school food. I wonder, of all of the meetings you've attended and the blogs that you've written, have there been these aha moments when you've thought, oh my gosh, I never would have imagined I need to write about this? Oh gosh, I mean, I think there have been lots of those moments. I mean, I think really at the core of my interest, what really got me interested just in starting the blog in the first place, it might surprise people to learn, it wasn't so much anger about what I was seeing in cafeterias. It was more that I was learning more about the National School Lunch Program and the financial constraints, the regulatory constraints, and all kinds of other factors that kind of push schools into the food that we see that, though it's greatly improved these days, still has some flaws. And what I really wanted to share with people was my own growing sense of empathy for the people running school food programs, which I think is a very important starting point for anyone who wants to bring about change. So that really has always been kind of a core thread throughout my blogging, is trying to channel people's sometimes understandable frustrations about school food and other food issues, but also share the perspective of the people providing the food. And I think that has really helped foster some really productive conversations. Yeah, I remember a lesson my mother told me, which was try to put your feet in someone else's shoes. And I think coming from a position of empathy is really smart. And I agree with you. You know, I think that There's so much victimization and blame when people really don't have much choice in the, in the situation. My children are grown now. And so, you know, my own interaction with the school food service was probably different than it is for you now with younger children. But there were some common threads, you know, certainly being a dietitian, not seeing whole grain foods, having white bread. I remember that was my first foray into trying to change the system. And the school food service director at the time said, well, if we don't serve white bread, the kids won't eat it. So that's always something that comes up, right, where you try to change something to make it more healthful. And the first barrier perhaps we might hear is, well, you know, if we do that, the kids won't eat it. What do you say to that? You know, I think... That's a really important topic for discussion. Just to give listeners some background in case they're not aware of it, in 2010, President Obama signed into law the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, and that represented a just tremendously necessary overdue overhaul of school meal standards, including, to take your example, making all the grain foods that are served have to be at least 50% whole grain, which is not 100% whole grain, but it's a step in the right direction. And kids have to take fruits and vegetables now at lunch instead of passing them up and all kinds of other really significant nutritional improvements that went into effect in 2012. And, yeah, there were some issues, I think, in the initial adoption of those new standards pertaining to children's acceptance of those foods. And it's a balancing act always because, of course, cafeteria 
food service directors are always worried if I lose participation in my cafeteria, I lose revenue, and that right. drains the program. So it's, they, they are walking this very delicate high-wire act, and I really sympathize with them. And also, you know, we do live in a food culture, I think, that doesn't necessarily support kids' embrace of healthful foods all the time. I mean, we know that, like, on any given day, one-third of kids are eating fast food. We know that you walk into a restaurant and kids are handed a children's menu, and very little on that menu promotes health. So there is that issue. But on the other hand, certainly we can't cater to that. You can't set your standards by that. We have to elevate the standard in the cafeteria, use that as an educational opportunity and kids come along and that's the thing you know the kid who's entering kindergarten now will never know anything different except bread that is 50 percent whole grain and taking a piece of fruit on her tray and so she's going to have a very different perspective than the kid who was a, a middle schooler when those changes were implemented right and i know that the school cafeteria is different for an elementary school age child versus a high school age child and by that i mean the high school students normally have if they're going to have freedom to be able to leave campus. And that was always one of the issues that was discussed. Do we have a closed campus where kids have to eat in the cafeteria, or do we have an open system where children are allowed to leave? And in some school districts, and I'll use my own as an example, the cafeteria and the seating area was so small that it really couldn't accommodate the growing numbers of children. So the school district really saw it as a way to help handle some of the increased load the kids could leave campus. But in doing so, all around the school, we saw fast food restaurants popping up. And in fact, I learned that fast food restaurants plan where to open their restaurants based on where the schools are located. So tell me a little bit about that conundrum that we face. That is Absolutely a conundrum for people operating cafeterias in high schools. I mean, we have the exact same thing here in Houston. The closed campus is the best friend of the food services director, right, because then everyone has to buy into the program. There's going to be more revenue in the program, and that can in turn improve the food. So that's the ideal situation from the cafeteria's perspective, but it's more often the case that it's an open campus, and I've heard this from people here in Houston who run our food program. We parents might come in with some concern and say, you know, why are we serving pizza every day or whatever, and then their answer is, well, we're competing with the dominoes down the street that kids can easily access. And so it does create this terrible incentive for them to try to kind of race to the bottom to sort of mimic the fast foods around the school, even though from a nutritional perspective it's still superior, but they feel they have to create entrees that are somehow competitive with those foods. And and it is really difficult, and it is true that there's some If you have staggered lunch hours, then a cafeteria may be able to handle the whole student body. But if you have a huge high school and everybody's coming in at once, it can be really difficult. But there are answers to that. I mean, you can set up grab-and-go areas where kids can quickly get the full meal and just pay for it. You know, there are um, high schools that are using food trucks, which I think is ingenious, Mm -hmm. you know, as another way of kind of relieving the cafeteria. And it has that kind of cool cachet. Right. Um, So, you know, there are ways that you can help address that problem, but it is practically quite difficult. Mm -hmm. In addition to the fact that the schools were competing with these fast food operations outside the school, how did much of the junk even get there in the first place? Well, let me preface that first, though, because I don't want to leave anyone with a bad impression. I mean, there really isn't much pure junk we all have a different definition of junk, but like, mm-hmm. you know, true junk food really has been taken out of the school cafeteria now because 
first of all, the, as I said, the nutritional standards for the school meal have really been greatly improved. And then schools can also sell, as I'm sure you know, um, what they call a la carte food, which is sort of their cafeteria snack bar line or what's in the vending machines. And then there's also, for example, student or PTA fundraising food. Right. All of that is, has been addressed by the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. And with respect to that so-called competitive or a la carte food, we've got some new and pretty stringent standards. So you're not going to see the kind of cafeteria awash in junk food that you might have seen in the 80s or 90s. That right. is a thing of the past, which is great. Good. Now, I should just add one caveat. States are allowed to set a designated number of days a year when there can be junk food fundraising. In, you know, mm. in other words, those rules don't have to apply. And each state can set its own number. And as you might imagine, there are some states where they say zero. We want to have the healthiest school food environment. And there are other states that kind of, to my mind, are sort of summing their nose at the federal government. And they've, they've created a, a large number of exempt fundraising days. So that's the loophole there, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. for the most part, again, the just sort of junk food carnivals we used to see are a thing of the past, which is great. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Bettina Elias Siegel. She is nationally recognized as being an advocate on issues relating to children and food policy, specifically school lunch. And if you haven't already seen her excellent blog, it is called The Lunch Tray. And in that, she addresses all kinds of school food issues that those of us who care about our children's health would be wise to read. All right, Ms. Siegel, let's move on to another topic in school, and that has to do with food waste. I remember when the new school food standards, the healthier food standards, came into being, into law, and I can hear the arguments now. Oh, the kids aren't going to eat that. It's going to increase school food waste. What have we seen you know, you're absolutely right. And there was an effort, or there actually is an effort ongoing in Congress among some factions to roll back some of the nutritional improvements that we talked about. And one of the justifications is there's increased food waste. And from what I've seen, there are conflicting studies on that point. But I would say the better of the studies, the bulk of the research falls on the side of no, there really hasn't been an increase in plate waste. And in fact, with the advent of these new healthier standards, we're actually seeing, not surprisingly, that kids are consuming more fruits, more vegetables, more of their entrees than they were before the healthier standards were implemented. So, you know, you will hear food waste kind of bandied about as a justification for making food, you know, rolling back to where we were. But as I said, I think the bulk of the studies really support that we're not seeing an increase in food waste. That's great news. The flip side of that is that we hear an argument, oh, the kids are so hungry now that these new standards have been put into place. You've got your ear to the ground on this. What do you think about that argument for removing some of those healthy standards because the kids are hungry? Well, it's really interesting because I think there's a perception out there that there's been this kind of slashing of calories. But in fact, the calorie amounts for you know the meals, which are staggered by age group, obviously going up as the child gets older, I think are either exactly the same or maybe even slightly higher. It's that maybe the, the nature of those calories have changed. So, so you know, kids have to take fruits and vegetables, but if they are throwing that in the trash, then a portion of their meal, a particularly filling portion, isn't being consumed. So really, I think it's a misconception that kids are being served fewer calories. It's just the calories are of a healthier nature. I guess is the way I would answer that. Mm -hmm. 
let's talk a little bit about your change.org petitions, because I wanted to ask you if you felt like you've had some clear successes within your own school district and how other parents can also be successful. So first, let's go back and talk about the change.org petitions that you initiated and your successes. To what do you attribute that success? You know, I'm glad to talk about them, but I should clarify that they really weren't dealing with school food per se or on the on like a district level. These were all three issues that really were on a national level. Um, the first one related to the use of what the meat industry calls lean, finely textured beef, but right. what is more commonly known as pink slime right. in the ground beef that the USDA helps school districts procure for their lunch programs. And I launched that in 2012 and it got about a quarter of a million signatures, and the USDA, I believe in response to the petition, um, changed its policy and now allows districts to choose beef that either contains that additive or not. In 2000, I want to say 14, I launched a petition with a fellow advocate, and this related to whether the school lunch program should be allowed to serve chicken that has been processed in China. You know, believe it or not, we actually, the USDA allows U.S poultry producers to ship their chicken all the way to China to have it cooked and otherwise processed and shipped back here, and it doesn't have to be labeled that way. There's no way a consumer can know if their chicken was processed in China. And as astonishing as it is, it's just a difference in labor cost that makes that transport of chicken actually cost-effective. It's incredible. So <laughs> It is incredible. It really is. It's astonishing. And, and we do that with seafood also. Pacific seafood goes to China sometimes for filleting and deboning. Mm-hmm. So that petition garnered over 300,000 signatures. And while I certainly wouldn't claim that our petition directly led to this result, it supported the result of every appropriations bill since has said that there will be no funding in the school meal program for chicken processed in China. So that's been sort of an ongoing victory. And then the most recent one I became aware that McDonald's was trying to get a documentary into schools that chronicled the experience of a teacher who ate nothing but McDonald's. And they were purporting to offer this to schools as a nutrition education video. And I think I was one of the first people to actually see this video. I was appalled by it. Mm -hmm. And I started a petition to ask McDonald's to stop its use or stop distributing it to schools, and that turned out to be successful. It got coverage on the front page of the Washington Post, and they eventually admitted that the reason why they were no longer pursuing it was because of the petition and the coverage, which was great. Congratulations, and thank you you. on behalf of future generations for doing this work. (laughs) No, I remember that video. It was a science teacher, and I thought, how is it possible for a science teacher who should understand biology and health systems to be promoting this to such impressionable children? I just thought he should have lost his job as well as getting the film out of circulation. But let's move on to some other issues within the larger national school food scene that you see. Tell me what you perceive as the biggest challenges facing school districts in preventing children from having truly nutritious meals. I think, you know, just taking a little issue with the premise of the question, I do think school meals right now are nutritious. If you look at them from a nutrient perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. I think we're actually doing a very good job of feeding children. You know, and 31 million kids are eating those meals every day, and 21 million of them are doing so out of economic need, and and we're doing a good job. And in fact, when you compare 
kids who eat school meals regularly versus kids who eat, eat a packed lunch, the school lunch kids are actually doing better from a nutritional right. standpoint. That's fair. But I, you know, I know what you're getting at, which, which is a concern that I have as well, which is a, a really heavy reliance still on highly processed foods. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we all have this vision of the ideal school food would be more fresh, scratched, cooked from whole foods kind of meals. And I think the biggest barrier to that ultimate goal is funding. It's just unconscionable from my perspective how poorly we fund school meals. And so I think that is really at the crux of the matter. And then another aspect of funding is kitchen infrastructure. The Pew Charitable Trust did this survey, I think in 2014, of schools all over the country and quantified that the total school kitchen infrastructure needs come to something like $5 billion. And right now in the federal budget, we're giving about $35 million a year in grants. Mm. So that's a huge differential. And, and so, you know, when you lack kitchen facilities, when you lack funding for the food, when you lack funding for labor to prepare scratch-cooked food, that's where we see this reliance on heat-and-eat processed food. And I think that's really the, the biggest issue. I agree. And the other issue to me is how much time children are given to eat, especially as you mentioned earlier, you know, having those staggered times. So you could have a child that's eating lunch at 11 o'clock and you could have a child that's eating lunch at 2 o'clock. And those kids that get the later lunchtime are super hungry. And then there's not only, you know, the staggering of the lunchtimes, but it's also the time itself that children have to eat. And we want them to have good digestion. We want them to have a good social environment when they're eating. It's often competing with recess time. Let's talk about that for a little bit. You know, I'd be glad to, but I'm going to be the first person to say I do not have the answer to that problem, but it is absolutely a problem. And when you say kids could be eating 11, here in Houston, I've seen kids who eat lunch at like 10. So, you know, it's ridiculous. Now, often when kids are eating lunch at 10, they're going to get a snack in the afternoon and vice versa. When kids are eating at 2, they get a snack in the morning. But it's terrible. It is a terrible system. I've heard horror stories from readers. Someone was telling me about a district, I can't remember where, but obviously a cold weather Location where kids were required to eat in their snowsuits so that they could save time when they went to recess after lunch. And just the image of these kids like sweating in a cafeteria, scarfing down their lunch in 20 minutes in their snowsuit, it just broke my heart. And even in schools where they have maybe half an hour, if the line is so long that by the time they get their food, they have 10 minutes to scarf it down. It's just, it's a travesty. It, 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 It runs counter to everything we want to be teaching kids about, the enjoyment of food, the, you know, priority of breaking bread with people and having time and being able to talk and relax. It's just, it's terrible, but I think it is a function of all kinds of really difficult factors, school overcrowding, the demands of the curriculum, you know, all of these other issues, facilities that are too small, I mean, et cetera, that that are hard to find the sort of easy answer to. I, I certainly don't have the answer. It's funny, I remember, and you probably saw the film too, Michael Moore's film, Where to Invade Next. And, yes. Right? Or do you remember? I think it was he went into a school cafeteria in France. Yes. And we saw the children eating, I would describe it as like human beings. And sitting together, they had china, they had real forks and knives and spoons. And I remember a comment by one of the staff, when they saw the comparison of what American children were eating 
And the line was something like, I feel so sorry for those children. And I remember tearing up because I thought, what is more important than our children? They're our future. And why would we want to try to cut corners and cut costs when it comes to something so important? I completely agree. I don't know if you are aware of this. I actually had a piece in the New York Times, an editorial, that followed the release of that Michael Moore film, speaking precisely about that segment of the film. And the point that I really wanted to make there, and I'm glad to be able to make here, is you see those scenes in other countries, whether it's France or Japan or certain Scandinavian countries, where you know where the, the, the school meals just look idyllic compared to what we see here. And what I wanted to convey was when you see that, it's very easy to have this instinct that you just want to bash what's going on in your district, that you that what we see here can only be the, the fault of, like, unfeeling, uncaring, horrible people. And what I wanted to say was you have to remember that what you're seeing in that scene is reflective of a, a national food culture that is so vastly different from the American food culture. There's so many things going on in France that support what you see in that scene that are not happening here, starting with funding, by the way. I mean, they have so much more money in their school lunch program. But the, the lack of eating on the run in France, the discouraging of snacking, they actually have warning ads, excuse me, warnings on their junk food ads. I mean, you know, they, they don't let kids bring lunch from home because they so value this sort of communal dining experience where they're trying to teach kids, you know, train their palates. So, you know, it, again, it's easy to see nuggets and fries in our cafeteria. You know, again, we see less of that than we used to. But, you know, that sort of thing compared to this lovely meal in, in France. But it's important to remember all of the factors that underlie those differences. Yes, absolutely. We we need a cultural shift to start revering our food again, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left. So I want to open this up to you to let you bring whatever you'd like to our listeners about school food. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, on my blog, I try to offer advice to parents who want to advocate at their district level, and I would never discourage parents from advocacy, and I do what I can to support them and offer resources. And there are parents out there who are slowly but surely sort of chipping away at obstacles in their district, but I really think at bottom this is a federal issue and we really need to be holding our congressional lawmakers accountable here. And we need to, my hope is that at some point we can show lawmakers that parents care about this issue. This is an issue on which we might vote, you know, that that, that we want to see greater funding and greater support of the school meal program. I just don't think it's on people's radar that way, but that really is the source, I think, of a lot of our problems. I think if we had greater funding and greater infrastructure and greater support for districts, the benefits would trickle down. And so, to me, we have groups now like Food Policy Action, which are trying to harness the concerns of average people to show that there is a food movement and hold lawmakers accountable and have a scorecard, a legislative scorecard. And I think this putting school food on that scorecard is, is the way that we're going to drive change. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think it would be fabulous if our parent-teacher organization newsletters perhaps had a section on policy where we could understand how our different local representatives were supporting or not our local and national food system. So I think that's a fabulous piece of advice to leave our listeners with. In closing, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Bettina Elias Siegel, writer and nationally recognized advocate on issues relating to children and food policy. 
Her blog, if you'd like to follow along with her work, is terrific. It's www.thelunchtray.com, and I will provide a link to that along with this interview. I want to thank my listeners for joining us. I want to thank you, of course, Ms. Siegel, for being my guest. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much for all of your work and advocacy to protect our children's health. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.